Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is I get to meet the most interesting, fascinating people. And that's who I have on the show today. Someone that as soon as I came across them was actually a, a, a company we're partnered with, mentioned Gail, and I checked her out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to meet Gail and I've got to get her on the podcast. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog, Gail Crosley. Thank you, Christopher Smith. <laughs> <laughs> That was quite a quite an intro there, huh? Really, I like it. So Gail is a strategic growth consultant with Crosley and Company, and Gail, you just you really have quite a story to tell. We're going to get into that, but tell me about Crosley and Company. So I started Crosley and Company a couple of decades ago, and what I do is uh, help CPA firms grow by taking them to the highest level of sophistication and driving demand and strategic growth possible, in a nutshell. In a nutshell, there's a lot in there to unpack, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, typically I'll work with clients over a period of two to three years. I'll be in their offices one to two days every six weeks. And needless to say, I fly around the world a lot. Yep. <laughs> and, and um, and by the time I'm gone, you know, they've gone from a very low level of sophistication to uh, the highest level possible to really driving strategic growth. Right. So one of the things you'll see if you, if you go out and check out Gail's LinkedIn profile, and I suggest you do, she has 343,000 followers on LinkedIn. Wow. <laughs> that didn't I, happen overnight. I, I don't know how it happened to tell you the truth. Somebody told me one day a few years ago that I had that many, and this was back when I wasn't using LinkedIn. And I said, so, so what is a follower? thousand <laughs> 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 of anything sounds like a really good thing. And uh, yeah, yeah, I had no idea the, the reach that I have, but I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate about that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So Gail, my first question, what are the three things when you look back over your career that have really driven and led to your success? Probably the, the thing that, that was the hardest to do and the hardest to find was finding my purpose. You know, why am I on this planet? Um, what am I really good at? How can I contribute the, the gifts that I've been given? And when I finally found that, and it took many, many years, by the way, to find, uh, that's when I really took off. So that's the first thing. The second thing is my husband. Uh, my husband, uh, dare I say, I used to work for him back way back in IBM days. And we're coming up on our 40th wedding anniversary. And he is uh, a few years older than me. So he always was in a position of being my mentor and really, really good with uh, supporting me, developing me, you know, even long after our, our paths uh, diverged in the corporate world. And then the third thing, uh, but the most important thing is the Lord. 
I found the, you know, I found God, he found me many years ago, and uh, I'm just following his plan. Uh, all the doors that are opening for me are the ones that I'm supposed to be going through. So those are the three things that are, that are the contributors to, to the success. I love that answer. What a great answer. That's speaking from your heart. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's the secret sauce for me. That's awesome. I love it. So, Gail, you have, a, I think, a very interesting story to tell. Um, when I ask the question, like, you know, did you grow up wanting to be a salesperson? Nobody ever says yes to that. Like, <laughs> nobody, like, is sitting there playing, you know, whatever games you're playing as a kid. Like, I want to be a salesperson. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you want to be when you're going through college? What was your plan? So my plan, Chris, was to be a classical piano performance major and going go on and, and play classical piano. And um, because I'd been playing piano since I was five years old. And uh, when I got into college, uh, when I hit the second year, which is after you get through the general courses, and I went into the counselor and said, this is what I want to do. She said, well, what language then do you want to learn? And I said, what, what are you talking about? A language? I want to play piano. And she said, well, piano majors are required to take a language. And I said, I, I don't think so. I took nine years of French, Chris, from third to 12th grade. I cannot speak a word of it. I am horrible with languages. So I said, that that's not, that's not going to happen. What, which of the colleges or degrees within the university don't require a language. And she said, there's only one and that's the business school. So I said, well, then I'm going to be a business major. <laughs> All to avoid French. <laughs> or any language for that. Or any language, yeah. <laughs> and so I became a businessman major uh, quite, that was the way I got into it. And then when I hit my first accounting class, I'm like accounting 101, I am a duck in water. I mean, I love this stuff. And so I went on to to major in accounting. I actually was a top student. I sat for the CPA exam while I was still in college, which is really kind of unheard of. That is, that's insane. Yeah, so I was I was definitely, you know, I was going to be a partner in a, in a large accounting firm. And uh, so that was my the first step of my career uh, into sales. And you said, that does yeah. nothing. Wow. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Nothing about me that would cause me nor anybody else, parents, family, friends or anybody to say, you know, boy, she's really cut out for sales. No, I was cut out for accounting. Right. So, I'm an auditor at uh, two two of the large firms, Arthur Anderson and Pricewaterhouse, for the first few years of my career. Yeah. So you're going down this path in accounting. Um, what was there a pivotal moment, or was it more of a gradual shift into sales? What happened is I had relocated from Cleveland to Atlanta because I hated the weather in Cleveland, and so I was I planted my flag here as an adult to be. Uh, to be successful as an auditor. And at Pricewaterhouse, I was the only woman, back then there weren't any women in accounting. And I was the only woman, the first woman. And then, um, but I was a Yankee. I was in the South. I was a woman in public accounting back in the day. It was an extremely harsh environment. Um, there were no opportunities of development because she's just going to go and have babies. So let's not invest in her kind of a- This is terrible. It was rough, yep. but um, anyway, so I decided to leave and I said, perhaps corporate America is a better place to be. 
And by this time, I had practiced as a CPA for a while. So I was looking for a, an accounting job in corporate America. And I wandered into the local IBM office in Atlanta. And they said, we're sorry, we don't, we don't have any accounting jobs. We're a sales office. And I said, oh, well, goodbye. And they said, wait, wait, we think you can sell. And I said, excuse me, I'm a professional. <laughs> oh, I left. And they kept coming back at me, you know, over the period of a year. And, you know, I, I tried a couple of other jobs that, you know, an internal audit job, I, I this, that, and the other. And finally, a year later, and they said, listen, we are starting the first class for women to teach them how to sell the big irons, the big mainframes that would fill, you know, multi-million dollar, um, uh, you know, equipment. And um, we think you can sell this stuff because we can teach you how to sell, but we can't teach you how to be analytical. And, and you know what these machines do. They're just big accounting machines. So um, I spent, you know, I made a list of demands for them. And I, one of them was to, um, to go out with one of their salespeople for a day and see, you know, what's up with that. And he rolled up in, in his Mercedes. And I'm like, ooh, this is nice. <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> And then um, we went out to see a client, uh, a, a DP manager, they called them back then. And it was a, a very, you know, interesting day. So I said, well, OK, I'll try it. And um, I went into their training program. They taught me how to sell. And I remember my first commission check. Uh, at the time I was married and I, and we didn't have much furniture in our house. And I said to the husband, what are we going to do with my first commission check? And we had no dining room table. And he said, you know, but we'd love to ski. And his parents had a ski boat. And he said, Gail, you know, you can eat on a boat, but you can't ski behind a dining room table. So we went and paid cash for a ski boat with my first <laughs> uh, But the rest is kind of history. I spent the rest of my career in sales marketing and new product development, many years with IBM and then venture capitals uh, back tech startups and bounced between those three discipline, fine, disciplines, finally becoming a chief growth officer and having you know responsibility for all those functions. So, so let's go back. You, you mentioned it was a, the first sales program for women. Talk about that sales program, sales training. The reason why I'm asking that just to give you a hint where I'm going with this is I'm realized talking with young salespeople, very firm, very few firms actually train their salespeople. They pretty much throw them in the deep end. So can you talk about what your experience was like as a young salesperson and the training right. that you received and the learning journey you went on? Yeah. And I would encourage any young people that are watching this, um, this recording to go get sales trained. Uh, if you if your organization doesn't have it, just go get it yourself because it's not in any college program, no. but it's a discipline that is as rigorous as accounting, auditing, or any other profession. And when I hear these salespeople who are thrown into it, and some of them very natural, others not so much, but have no training, it's shocking to me. Yeah. Uh, I, the IBM program was a year plus long. I think about a year, year and a half. And it started with the basics all the way up through pretty sophisticated selling, strategic solution selling, because we were selling these uh, large computer systems with multi-million dollar price tags. And the the um, the sell cycle was uh, up to two years long. 
and lots of decision makers and lots of power in politics. And so it wasn't transaction sales, which, you know, you can cut your teeth on and, and get, we didn't go up the food chain. It was like, you're on quota. And I had a senior sales partner who really tutelaged uh, me along. But the bottom line is that I ended up in that type of sales. And only after I left IBM and I was thrown into venture capital backed startups, did I have to deal with getting something actually off the ground? Right, right. <laughs> So I've been at the very, you know, at the get it off the ground stage and transactional all the way up to the very large and strategic solution selling and short and long sales cycles and everything in between. Um, so as a result, I have a very broad repertoire in the selling space. Yeah. What do you think is the harder world to live in, you know, where you're saying that the really big deals, super long sales cycles or the smaller, like, hey, we have to start, we're starting from zero and we need to build everything from the ground up. So um, they're equally difficult in different ways. And the important thing here is for the salesperson to know what he or she is. Because when I was building sales organizations, then I realized that I have people who can go and work a room and find a lead, but they can't do anything with it. And then they've got, so that's one, you know, that's one category. The second category is, people who are very transactional and they have a short attention span and they need smaller dollar uh, I, uh, you know, transaction size and shorter sell cycles, but they, they really like, you know, they get revved up with that, with that pace. And then there's the third variety, which is the long strategic sell cycle people who can stay focused on something for a couple of years and build long-term relationships and large accounts. And all three of these are equally challenging. And the key thing, is to get the right type of salesperson in the right kind of territory situation because you can have a really great salesperson in the wrong role and then they're not making quota and you go what what's wrong with this well that's because there was no awareness that there are these three types and sometimes we have a unicorn that's good at all of them that does happen every now and again but it's not necessarily the norm so what what's your recommendation for a young sales leader who's trying to figure this stuff out, how how do you build that skill set other than trial and error? Um, you get you read some books and you get sales trained, and then you start looking at you know what how are you wired? If you like to go and and work a room and hobnob around among the elite and so forth. Well, then that should tell you that you're probably category one right. and, um, and, and so on. And if you're really having a hard time sticking to the politics and power of large accounts, you're probably not there. You're probably in category two. And so or if you're if you're if you're in category two and they say, you know, how many sales are down? How many calls did you make? And you're like, but I want to hang out with this guy. Right. <laughs> you're not driving revenue because you're really category three. Sometimes it is that way. We can we can do assessment instruments, and I often I have someone that I partner with that uh, does all the assessment instruments, so we can kind of figure out what kind of salesperson this is, and of course their background and resume often um, tell us a, a lot as well. So that's really important is to find where you fit in that whole thing. What was your transition into sales leadership like? Was that easy or difficult for you? Oh my God. What a question, Chris. It was so hard, so hard. Um, I'd been on quota for five years. 
got really successful there near the, you know, after a couple of years of trying to figure out where the bathroom is. And then at IBM, you go to a staff job for two years. So they really want to round you out. And then you work an entire ter territory in terms of support for the salespeople. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you usually have, for example, one product that you're the product manager for and driving. And then you come back as a sales manager and you don't have any classes or anything just yet. And they throw you into the deep water. So I had 11 salespeople working for me. And with the exception of two of them that were in their 20s, everybody else was 55 years of, of age or older. So here I am, yeah. I'm all of like 33 or so years yeah. old. Yeah. And I'm trying to tell these old dogs. And by the way, they were coasting. They were big time coasting. Right. I remember, and I'm embarrassed to say that I did this, but at one time I was so frustrated. I had a little badge that, that I wore one day to the office that said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> His hair sticking out. No, that probably was not very motivational to them. <laughs> and this unit had not made quota in like four years, right? I mean, right. it was really, but but it it's it was like, okay, well, we'll give her this territory, see what she can do with it. But yeah, that was my first sales manager job. Right, right. Was there a takeaway? A key takeaway from that experience that you've been using it ever since then? Uh, yes. Um, one of the things that uh, there were a lot of things that I took away, but one of them was if you've got more senior salespeople and they are know, know what they do are doing, give them the quota, give them the support and get out of their way. Um, I had one, one, and I learned this later when I was head of sales for MCI for, for all of Florida, national accounts. I had one salesperson down there who disappeared on a regular basis. I could never find him. He'd never call me back. And I was frustrated about this. And, um, but he, he brought in the bacon. And I, that really cemented it for me. I no. said, no let the guy do what he does. And, and I, you know, don't make him, I mean, he wouldn't sell out, he wouldn't fill out paperwork. He wouldn't get his time, you know, his T and E's in on time. He drove me crazy. And so he had bad behaviors, but he was really a good sales guy. Yep. So it was kind of like, okay, you know, how, what can I live with and what is unacceptable? Right. And, right with it so yeah that's that's what i started to learn with these with these nine guys that were very mature and then finally it it, it hammered in later yeah so um do you have a a uh, personal mantra or or way that you would kind of characterize your approach to leadership um That's a that's that's a, a soul searching question, because I think probably the number one thing for me is integrity. And and that's where I said, you have to you have to figure out, you know, what's acceptable and what isn't. If he doesn't show, you know, put his T and E in on time, that's acceptable. What's unacceptable, and, and in the same uh, role that I had, I had one salesperson who was sleeping with the president of the company. And um, and then I found out from a competitor that this was happening. Well, I, you know, it didn't matter at that point how much she was driving revenue-wise. 
right. I had to make a decision and it, it was an easy decision for me. I, I don't care how much revenue she's, she's driving. Right. Um, that integrity has to be at the foundation because when you think about people who are buying something from you, they're trusting you, yeah. you know, and, and if you, if you can't be a person of integrity at some point along the way, you're going to violate trust and that's not going to be good for anybody in the long term. So, so that's one. The, the second thing is, and it's tied to the first one, your reputation is everything. It's everything, everything in a market. And when you get crosswise or sidewise from somebody, you've got to clean that up You've, because you got to clean it up. And, um, and sometimes it's really hard to step up to the plate and clean it up. And you have to be the more mature person like, well, he did me wrong or she was, you know, she, she got, you know, credit for that opportunity that I was supposed to, whatever. You have to sit down and say, let's talk through this even though it's uncomfortable, you know, it's got to be done because your reputation that you are a person of high integrity and you will look out for the best interests of the client always has got to be number one. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, uh, especially that, that, that scenario, that's an absolute deal breaker for me, you know, where it's like, it, like, there's just a fundamental of, level of trust you have to have with people and they violate that. I'm sorry, that's done. You know, it's like, that's a really almost impossible thing to recover from. Well, and it's not just the person, it's the market itself because it bleeds over. And, and how are you going to show that you're a person of trust if you aren't consistently one of them? Right. You know, it's going to break down somewhere. Yeah. Um, it will follow you and it will bite you some time down the road and it will get in the way of what's really important, which is that consistency in character, integrity and reputation and putting the other person first. And yep. this is really hard to do, Chris, because you've got quota hanging over your head. Yep. So you've you've often got this push and pull going between what's the right thing to do and what's the thing that is going to be the best thing for me? Right. And there's not a doubt in my mind now, after all these years, was I like that in the beginning? No, no I don't know that I was, but now I realize it's everything that right. even if I didn't make quota, um, what am I here for? What's the long game here? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and making quota, not making quota for one year, in the bigger scheme of things is not nearly as important as, as the long-term game. And, and when you, when people know that you're putting their interest before yours, that's, that's worth its weight in gold. I wish I, I wish I could say that I knew that back when I was a young sales pup, but right. now that I know it, I pass this on to all of your listeners and especially those that are coming up through the ranks that will be put in these situations all the time yeah. and yet that's what it's really all about yeah. I you have to be able to look at yourself in a mirror and you know it's like uh um because when everything's all said like we we have ourselves you know and it's like to me i have to be able to live with myself i need to be able to go home and, and look my family in the eye and say you know i acted with integrity that day i don't tell them that but i know in my heart i did yeah. You know, and, and that that's really important. 
Yeah, and it's not easy because it's it's easy to justify mm -hmm. things. It's very easy to, to oh, yeah. you yeah. know incrementally justify behavior that maybe wasn't quite putting the other person ahead of me. But yeah. you you have to really examine it and every step of the way say, am I doing what I'm supposed to do in alignment with what what I want myself to be? So right, right. Um so if you have someone on your team that maybe isn't performing up to to uh, to par or where your the expectations that have been established, what's your recommendation or how do you like to approach those people and try to turn that situation around? So I put them into one of four categories that IBM taught us, uh, willing and able, unwilling and able, willing and unable, or unwilling and unable. And I, and I discern what category are they in. And depending upon what category they're in, then that's what, what I do to, to work with the situation. If they're willing and able, there's, you know, that's just pats on the back and throw them bonus money as quick, you know, as often as you can. Right, right. But the other three categories, you know, it, it depends. Unwilling and unables are, you know, that means you're you're disruptive to yourself or the team and you're never and you're never going to get any better, right? Right. If if you've tried and you and you really you have concluded um that. So it just depends on, you know, where they are in the quadrants. Yeah. I remember as a young leader trying to rehabilitate the unwilling and unable. <laughs> I sure I can do this. I can turn cool. them around. Yeah. Now I'm just like, you go find, you know, go find a place where you fit. You don't fit here. Exactly. Um, That's the thing about unwilling and unables um, or uh, willing and unables is they just haven't found their purpose. Right. Um, and it's not, you know, the, the best thing that you can do is to help them find their purpose. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of them are not self-aware enough to know that yeah. that's, situation is so they may not like you for it but that's your that's your responsibility um is to help them find their right place right. on the planet yeah, I, that was key for me is realizing that i really wasn't doing that any favors mm -hmm. keeping around and keeping them miserable keeping me miserable um it wasn't helping anybody yeah, yeah. getting through it is not the it's it's the hard part is once you once you realize that that's what the situation is, then how do you navigate it so that they're, you know, that they end up in a good place and end up with the two of you being okay? And I must tell you, I wish that I had that I had the gifts to make me better at that than I am. Right. But, um, those those are not necessarily my the my strongest assets, and I know that. Yep. How so. do you teach? Um, young salespeople, how to deal with failure? Because it is such an ingrained part or such an integral part of the job. Um, you can't win them all. How do you teach failure? What I tell them is, and this is what IBM told us, is that we, um, when we don't win the business, these are the ones that we learn the most from, which is so true. Yeah. So look, stick your ego on the shelf this is, you know, this is not about you personally. Let's find out what didn't go well and what you learned about it for the next time around. And so that is, and, and I do a lot of um, 
implementation of firm-wide pipelines in my CPA firm. So we're working with, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40, 60, 150 partners that are all, you know, contributing to the pipeline. And so we have lost reviews. They're really hard for CPAs, but I tell them on the front end, this is not a personal failure on your part. This is, these things are too large and complex and sophisticated for you to be able to control all the outside factors that influence the sale itself. So let's see what you could have done and learn from it. And it, it is a really hard pill to swallow. And I will tell you at IBM, I had a major opportunity that I found out, and it was a current client that had a couple of large mainframes installed. And we, I was going for an upgrade because they were almost out of capacity. And one of my competitors got in there and wooed them and wowed them. And of course we had to fill the sky with airplanes and my boss got involved and the regional people, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they had to remove me from the account. Why? because the, the decision maker did not want to buy from me for whatever reason. And it didn't right. matter what it was. Yep. He wasn't going to buy from me. And my boss had the wherewithal and understanding to, to realize that and sat down with me and said, listen, this is not about assuaging your ego, Gail. Right. This is about getting the job done, their company to our company. They don't want to buy from you. And it's nothing personal we've got to remove you from this client and oh boy, what a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. But you know, you have, you, if you're running an organization, you have to do that and you have to know that that may, might happen to you. They don't like the color of your hair. They don't like that you wore a, wear a mustache, whatever. They didn't like me. I was a female, whatever it was, it didn't matter. Uh, what mattered is, did we get the job done? Yep. Um, you mentioned the retrospectives. I think that's a really critical part of, of the sales learning journey. Do you have a structure in terms of how you like to do those retrospectives on the lost deals? Um, yes, it is kind of the Monday morning quarterback meeting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, let's, let's roll the game tape. So let's sit down and, and go through, you know, what happened, and I, I teach a workshop called Landing the Big Fish, and there are certain principles that are pretty immutable. And, um, and because of that, and I, my CPAs, I, they go through my workshop, and then I, I do a lot of coaching because they, they don't have any sales experience, and then here they are thrown into these big opportunities. Yep. Um, and they, in accounting, we have something called general accepted accounting principles and they're immutable, like debit is left and credit is right. It's immutable. And so they're generally accepted growth principles around landing the big fish. And so when I hear you know, the game tape, I'll say, okay, that's the principle of divide and conquer that you, that you violated. And as a result of the principle that you, that you have violated, what's happened is it went sideways and into the ditch. So remember the next time. So I'm listening for the, at the game, at, at the, you know, what the, the situation is. And then I'm applying the principles that, that did not, were not uh, applied. Sure. And about 90% of uh, 80 to 90% of the uh, deals that go south are because of poor qualification, 
poor lead qualification ends up to be 80 to 90 percent of why we didn't win. So if you go right way back, you, you find they didn't qualify early, they didn't qualify hard, and they didn't qualify often, which means with every single person one-on-one -on -one that was involved in the decision process. And so it's not hard to unravel these things because that's where most of it goes awry. I tell you, that is a hard lesson to learn. Um, I, I think every salesperson you've been doing long enough, you realize at some point that 100%, like most of the stuff we lose, it's because of, it's at the front end, it's not at the back end. The it's all end. at the front end. Yeah. And I mean, I look back on deals and I'm like, why were we even chasing that deal? Yes. But all this time and, and effort into this, we never should have been chasing that deal to begin with. It's lunacy. It, and, and I say, well, why? It's because we didn't have enough deals in the pipeline to keep us busy and distracted. Yeah. <laughs> why don't we have enough leads in the pipeline? Because we're not doing lead generation, you know, to the level that we need to. Why is that? And then we get into the market's too small. There are not enough fish in the pond. Uh, the market conditions are poor, you know, all kinds of stuff that, or we don't know how to find leads. We don't, when we see a lead, we don't even know unless it slaps us upside the head. So yeah. you, you can actually, you know, go way back to the beginning and get to the, yep. the issue and resolve it. Yeah. It's amazing for me as, you know, implementing CRM, when we get into that, you know, we ask like, okay, what's your qualification process? I'm not kidding you. I'd say nine out of 10, it's actually higher than nine out of 10. It's probably 9.9 .9 out of 10. It's deer in the headlights. Like, what are you talking about? If they call us, we're going to try to sell them. You oh, know? And, and it, it, it blows my mind that it's like, um, and yeah. it, like, no, <laughs> it's like, you can't chase every deal, you know, and, and uh, um, that that's a part that just like, wow. Um, um, I, I call it the new shiny object syndrome, right. you know, oh, there's something new and shiny. Let's go chase it. Yeah. I will tell you that um, when I tell them about my own experience with chasing leads, I'm very discerning. I'm looking for the reasons why it's not a good situation for us to chase. Right. Um, and start there. And that means that I can qualify really hard. And a lot of um, a lot of people, if they don't even know how to qualify the lead, they won't know what qualifying hard means, but right. it means to ask the really hard questions, the elephant in the room, the thing they don't wanna talk about, the thing that is so obvious and you're afraid to ask the question about. Um, so yeah, lead qualification, you got me on my hot button here when we talk about that. Oh yeah, I, I tell you, there's a, a... I had a similar experience or, or kind of aha moment for me where I was used was struggling early on with hiring and I would save all my hardest questions for the end when I was hiring people because I was almost like I wanted to convince them to come work with me and come work with my team. And then I read this book called Who uh, um, the A plus method for hiring and they were just like, why are, your time has value. Um, why are you wasting all this time interviewing someone if you know you're not going to hire them? So yeah. put all your hardest questions up front. You're looking for reasons not to hire them. Right. Get those up front, screen them out, and move on to the next one. And you know to free your time up to focus on the person you really want to hire. Yeah. And that, it's the same way with your 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 qualification process. You're looking for those reasons 
Yeah. Why I don't want to work with you? Why this isn't going to work? Because time is value. I need to work, focus all my time and energy on the deals I actually have potential to close. I'll tell you that early on, um, several years ago, I ran into the Sandler method, and I Sandler's still around, and I liked, you know, they they are proponent of this approach. So those of you who are watching this, and by the way, the Sandler didn't pay me any money. <laughs> some sales training, at least look at the Sandler, you know, which is qualify hard, you know, really, really ask the questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, we're coming up on our time here. I, I this is, I could keep talking to you forever, but um, Paul, you know, <laughs> I just said, you know, we have to shut this down sometime. So Gail, if people want to reach out, connect with you, they want to learn more about Crosslane Company, or if they just want to connect with you personally, what's the best way for them to do that? So my website is crosslycompany.com. And I have probably 160 articles I've written. And if you go to that tab of all my articles, one of the articles, I've got two, I've got a lead generation tab and I've got landing big fish tabs. So that's where the sales stuff is. And then the strategic growth stuff, you know, capturing markets, markets at a time and really driving a, a long-term sustainable growth. Those are in there as well. And then my uh, email address is gcrosley at crosleycompany.com. That's awesome. And if you didn't catch all that, we will have that in our show notes. You get the show notes at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog, where you will not only find this episode, but all our other episodes of sales lead dog. Gail, it, I was so excited to do this episode and I'm pretty wired up right now, having gone through it. I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, thank you so much for coming on sales lead dog and welcome to the sales lead dog pack. Thank you. Rough, rough. <laughs> <laughs> rough, rough back at you. <laughs> All righty. Thanks. Thanks, audience. Have a good one. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube. And you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog sales lead dog is supported by impeller crm delivering objectively better crm for business guaranteed